This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week as determined by you. I am your host, Don Grant, joining me today in the co-host chair, the co-host of Esoterica, the podcast. He does like to co-host, doesn't he? All the way from Abington, Massachusetts, Chris Schultz. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing excellent today. How are you? Good. Are things getting ramped up for Christmas there in Abington or in the holiday season? The holiday, we're, we're trying very hard to encourage people to stay home. Well, I know that different states are having different, uh, with, with COVID lockdown and everything else. How are things in Massachusetts? I know Massachusetts was doing okay at the beginning, but I know that over November and December, things have gotten a little bit out of control. Yeah, we're trending in the wrong direction now, um, for sure. We were pretty good up until late October. Now the numbers are going through the roof. Has the has the governor come up with any, is there, are there mandatory mask provisions or no? Everything is a suggestion at this point. And oh, that's, see, that's bad. Yeah, and well, you know, we're the revolutionary state, so you're, you're, <laughs> you're careful too. about telling people what to do. Uh, <laughs> but I think we're at the point where we need a mandate. I never thought about it before. It's funny how a, a state that is the revolutionary st- state is so regularly blue when it comes to election time. How is that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Massachusetts is an enigma because we are a blue state where where I live on the South Shore. If you look around, it seems surprisingly red. But after the election, every town was blue. So, well, as we talked about in the very first episode of this particular podcast, my co-host and I on that episode talked about the fact that the electoral map tends to be a lot more purple than people give it credit for, as opposed to just various striations of, of red and blue. True that. That is true. Are you ready to do this? Yeah, let's get into it. Thing one. Cold War Soviet spy gadgets and assassination tools are going on auction, and you can buy them as well. Would you like to buy some of these, Chris? You know, it's fascinating, and I think it's great that people can buy and own a piece of um, Cold War history, but it also seems rife for abuse. I, I would be concerned about people buying this stuff. Well, why? Because you're you're afraid that they would use the 1964 poisoned things that are 80 years out of date? I don't want to get pricked with the rice and dart by somebody's umbrella. <laughs> well, some of these things that they're selling are actually so completely out of date that w- when you look at what they did, they are they are laughably troublesome. There was a, a belt buckle camera that they, they said was so loud the agent had to sneeze when they took a picture. That's exactly the one I was looking for. It's like this belt buckle camera. You also have to wonder how big it was. Was it the size of, you know, a, a Dodge Grand Caravan or something. And it was, I'm not sure how much these things could be abused, but this collection, it was previously displayed at the KGB Espionage Museum in New York. That was opened as a private exhibit in 2019. Uh, unfortunately, went the way of all flesh when COVID hit and shut down a whole bunch of other things. And so they had all of this KGB espionage equipment sitting about doing nothing. And lo and behold, they decided to auction it off. And now it is going to Julian's Auction House, where on February the 13th, 2021, you and I and all of our listeners can go and buy some of this stuff. It would be fun to have. I I don't know. I was looking through some of the images they had from the museum, and and I don't know if they have a bat phone. But if I could get my hands on a Soviet-era bat phone, I I think I'd walk away happy. Well, they did have a number of things that looked very cool, although I'm sure they are the things that are probably going to go for the highest demand. 
amount. There, when I say that you and I can buy these things, I looked at some of the suggested prices of a few of them, and they do start somewhere, you know, in the fifty dollar to ninety dollar range. So not everything is going to be absolutely exorbitant, but they do have things like one of the most famous ones that they're selling is this pistol disguised as a lipstick, which is known either as uh, the Kiss of Death or the Deadly Kiss, and it is a, uh, a single shot four point five millimeter pistol that is designed to look like a regular lipstick. And it was issued to female KGB spies in 1965. I'm It is interesting reading through these, the, um, as ridiculous as a lot of this stuff seems now, especially when we're in a day and an age where, you know, your personal phone has more computing power on it than a Apollo rocket. Right. There's an incredible amount of craftsmanship that goes into these wacky spy items that's a, a lost art. I had heard that uh, Ian Fleming, a lot of people know that Ian Fleming, the author of James Bond, did in fact work for some intelligence agencies here and there, of which have, some have been identified and some have not. But one of the things that uh, is supposedly true of him was that he talked to some of his friends in the intelligence community and said that their gadgets were just not sexy enough, that they just weren't interesting, that they were all boring. And so they went back and redesigned, for example, the the shoe with the knife in it which I think is from Russia with love. Although if it's not, I'm going to cut this out of the show and make myself sound smarter. That was something that, that apparently it became a real thing that, that Ian Fleming suggested. Yeah. Life imitating art. Now, did you look at the page that the, the actual auction page on Julian's auction house? Yep. Now at the top, you have this artist's rendition of three KGB agents, right? Mm -hmm. Does that person look like anybody to you? Just on first glance, who do you think that looks like? Oh, it does look like the same guy. To me, when I said, as soon as I saw that, I thought it looked like Schwarzenegger. Am I crazy? Oh, no, I can see it. Definitely. It totally looks like Schwarzenegger. And, and I don't know if that was deliberate or if that was an accident, but this thing for Cold War relics, the artist's rendition seems to look a little bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I don't know how Arnold would feel about being uh, called a Cold War relic. <laughs> Wait, isn't he? Um, <laughs> they have a number of things in this auction which are really fascinating. One of the others is an umbrella. It's actually a replica umbrella that is supposedly similar to the umbrella that we think killed Bulgarian dissident uh, Georgi Markov, who was standing, he was a dissident who was, I believe, in London, uh, and all of a sudden he felt kind of a little pinprick in the back of his leg. He turned around and just saw someone uh, picking up their umbrella and running to a uh, running to a, a car, a nearby car. And then a few days later, he died. It turned out that he had been poisoned by ricin. And they have a replica of this umbrella in the museum. I think that's one of the things, much like the kiss of death, that's probably going to go for a, a high value. Yeah, I would think so. And, and a little sexier than Walter White's uh, pack of cigarettes with their ricin <laughs> in a cigarette. <laughs> Lydia, Lydia. I didn't know. This is one of the things that I learned through going through all this stuff. That the tooth with the cyanide capsule is a real thing. Did you know that? I didn't. I figured that was just a you know a work of fiction. So they actually did have these fake tooths with the cyanide capsule, where if you were getting interrogated, you could swallow it and and kill yourself to avoid interrogation. That's a real thing. Another option for this was they had suicide glasses that had a single cyanide pill hidden directly in the arm. So if you found yourself in trouble, you could just chew on the arm of the glasses and nobody would notice and you would poison yourself to avoid torture. Now I see you wear glasses. I do. I, I don't. 
I don't chew on them, but... You don't chew on them? Because I know that sometimes people play with their glasses and chew on them. I hope that none of the spies who were issued these glasses had that as a nervous habit. I know, right? That'd be the last nervous habit you had. It's really interesting to see how many different things they came up with that are very similar to what we would find in film. You would find uh, these things called chemical catchers. They released a scent on you that dogs could follow or a dye that could be seen under a specific light. This is like Mission Impossible type stuff. It is, and, and it's interesting... Uh, um, I know on the the website explaining this, there's a, a video that Gizmodo did. And um, one of the things you need to bear in mind when you're looking at this is, is all the, the death and murder and extreme violence that was behind these gadgets. That's true. They're kind of comical now, especially in this day and age, but um, their purpose was definitely nefarious. I found, I watched that video too, and I did find it interesting. That video seemed to take great pains to say, I know all this stuff is cool, but there are a lot of dead people at the other end of this, which to be fair is a very good point. Yeah, but we have a tendency to glorify these things anyway. I mean, there's any number of wax museums that are House of Horrors and torture chambers. It's Nothing new. I was looking at some of the other things that spies used during the time to identify each other because during the Cold War, I mean, obviously we still have spies now. One of the ways that they found spies, which I thought was really interesting, was that Russia used a really subtle trick to identify a lot of their spies, which was that Americans would use very good quality rust-proof staples on their documents, whereas Russians used cheap staples that left a rust stain behind. So if the documents had the staple with a rust stain, they knew it probably came from a Soviet, and they, they could determine if somebody was double agenting or that kind of a thing. Oh, that's interesting. Being given away by a staple. That's fine. Oh, listen, just a, ti- a tiny little staple. And the CIA also designed a tiny little anal toolkit, which spies could hide in their posterior in case of trouble. And then if they were captured, they would simply poop out the toolkit and uh, use it to do whatever. I- I'd be interested to know what was in that toolkit. Right. <laughs> Hopefully not ricin. Hopefully not. That could end badly. <laughs> uh, now, so these things are going for different prices. On the lower end of the price, I, I'm guessing, and maybe the things that people like you and I could afford, it's not just spy stuff. This auction also has a number of other things. It has a lot of communist stuff, which is kind of interesting. You can buy Che Guevara's high school report card officially signed. You can buy Fidel Castro's 1958 letter detailing his plans to infil- infiltrate Havana. You can find a thousand pound sculpture, stone sculpture of Lenin. You know what? I think I'm going to buy that. I think my wife would be really happy if I put that in the front yard. I'm sure that would get a lot of attention. So there's all kinds of different things. There's there's papers, there's, there's spy gadgets, there's all kinds of stuff. In terms of your concerns for at the beginning when we were chatting, I, I think the, the kiss of death lipstick gun might be troublesome. I, I, will, I, I would want to track whoever buys that thing. And make sure they're not getting on the, the latest American Airlines flight to Boston. Well, it's interesting. I, I know they they pitch some of this as great conversation items, and I'm trying to think of the segue that you would use to, to introduce this to somebody at a dinner party. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. How was your work today? Good. By the way, here's Shigwavar's report card. Thing two. And for thing number two, we pitch to Chris. So I, I have this little podcast where we talk about esoteric stuff. And I came upon what I would consider to be the most esoteric album ever. It was uh, Jean-Michel Jarre's uh, Music for Supermarkets. I am unironically and quite legitimately a Jean-Michel Jarre fan. Well, hold on, back up. I, <laughs> I, I was in high school. 
I, I, I suppose I still am. I occasionally pull out his albums. I have a couple of his CDs in still. Yes, CDs. Remember those back in hand cranked cars? I have a number of his albums, but I had never heard of this album, Music for Supermarkets. Music pour le supermarché. You have to tell us the story behind this album because it's insane. And it's funny, we stumbled across this. My co-host was Googling um, literally music for supermarkets, trying to to find <laughs> what they play at like Trukies or Stop and Shop. And this popped up. So I guess the origin was there was an art exhibit where supermarket items were being displayed out of context as items of art, and then they would be auctioned off. So Jar was asked to compose music for the exhibit. And during the process of composing the music, it occurred to him that the music playing in the background of an exhibit is an art item itself. Right. Um, and since the items that were on display were being auctioned off and only going to one person, uh, he decided to make uh, one copy of the album on vinyl and then destroy the masters so that only one person could ever own the music. And the funny thing about that is that it is cool and unbelievably pretentious all at the same time, which is it's a really interesting line to walk. So this is 1983. At that point, Jean-Michel Jarre had already been very, very established. Now, fun fact, I think you and I are maybe of a similar vintage, but when I went to high school, my family moved to England, to London, England. And so when I was a 14-year-old boy, here I was in this brand new town that I had never been in before and looking at all the world. And when I climbed on the subway, at that point, his album Oxygen had just been released and there were ads everywhere. And the cover was really cool. It had the earth deteriorating into this skull. It was amazing. And so I thought, well, I want to be one of the cool kids. I'm going to listen to this guy, even though I've never heard of him before. And so I bought the album, sight unseen. I'd never heard any of his music and listened to it. And I thought, okay, I could kind of, you know, it was the early days of, you know, lounge and chill and that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I quite legitimately got into him. But in 1983, he was, by that point, by the time this album came out, he was already a legend because of that album and the album before that, Equinox. And this album, um, so fortunately, even though there was only one copy, they did play it on Radio Luxembourg and it was bootlegged. So you you can find copies of the recording online. Well, and before it was played on Radio Luxembourg, he even said to bootleg it, right? He he said, pirate me, pirate me, as just before it was played. Right. But yeah, the, I think the story behind the creation of this album is so funny that this this exhibition, which was dedicated to the development of supermarkets and the idea of this, this art exhibition that he was writing the music for was that items from an ordinary shop would be shown in a different light and then sold at auction. So it was just typical things that you would find at your typical store that were shown. And then when they were sold at auction, they were sold for these exorbitant amounts of money. It's like taking Andy Warhol to the next illogical step. And and yeah, if you think about it, Jean-Michel Jarre with all of his artists' friends sitting on the left bank talking about uh, supermarket items becoming art is easily the most French thing I can think of. <laughs> My wife is French. I'm allowed to mock. Actually, I'm French. I'm allowed to mock. So yeah, as you said, he decided to come up with this album. It was sold. They actually sold this for about $9,000. It was 69,000 francs back then, 9,000 bucks. Did you see who bought this thing? That's also a really interesting story. Tell us who bought it. Um, So it was a a guy who apparently had been in a, a car accident and was in a coma. 
when he woke up from the coma, um, Jar was playing on the radio. Uh, I, I don't recall what the song was. It was it was actually Souvenir de Chine because Jean-Michel Jarre had been one of the only Western artists to be allowed to play a concert in China. So this guy who had had a car accident woke up and, and was hearing Jean-Michel Jarre's China album on the radio. And he said he felt forever indebted to him. And so he decided to express his reverence by paying 9,000 bucks for this one copy of this album. And I, I feel like that's got val- more value attached to it than buying a bunch of bananas um, at an exorbitant price. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only other album that I'm aware of that is a similar situation is the Wu-Tang Clan put out um, a one-copy album that Elon Musk has. That's right. That's right. And I remember he he paid a, a pretty penny for it as well, didn't he? Yeah, I, it was tempted afterwards. Not that I have the ability to get in touch and, and have him pay attention <laughs> to me, but I'm like, let's talk about that. Let's hear that album. Let's play us a clip. Well, he just actually, Elon Musk just recently passed uh, Bill Gates as the second richest person on the planet after Jeff Bezos. So Oof. I guess he can afford a number of those albums. Maybe he could buy music for supermarkets if he really wanted to. This is frequently listed in some of the most rare and expensive albums in the world, of which there's actually quite a few. Yeah, it's surprising. And especially, I mean, we, we talked about Cold War relics and vinyl is, I know it's making a bit of a comeback, but that's really um, something of a bygone era. Oh, vi- vinyl's making a comeback. My daughter just bought herself an album the other day because she's getting herself a, a record player for, for Christmas. And she bought herself an album. It was 40 bucks for the album. So this is something that annoys me as a, as a Gen Xer. It's like when grunge became popular. Yeah. I, I wore flannel and corduroys hand-me-downs because that's all we could afford. And right. then it became a fashion thing. Um, I used to pick up vinyl records at estate sales and yard sales and pay pennies for them. And now, like, you're not kidding. A new album comes out on vinyl. It's a $40 limited collector's edition. I still have, I don't know, most people of our generation tends to have that uh, milk carton with albums stacked in it with LPs in it because the milk carton was exactly the size that a 33 RPM album would fit inside. I still have one of those sitting underneath the stairs in the basement I'm currently recording this in. One of those. I have a wall of those. (laughs) (laughs) One of my my favorite, actually, uh, aspects of Jean-Michel Jarre is that he wrote a song that was supposed to be the very first song or saxophone solo played in space. Did you know this? Really? I did not know that. It was written for Ronald McNair. He was an astronaut on The Challenger. I do remember McNair. Yeah, so McNair was one of the astronauts on The Challenger, which unfortunately exploded in 1986. And what was going to happen was Jean-Michel had written this piece for him to play on the saxophone, and it was going to be on his album Rendezvous as the first music recorded in space, which was then commercially released. And of course that didn't happen. And so they went ahead with the song and the song is still, it's still on the, if you you can listen to it. In fact, I'm going to play a bit of it right now. So you can hear it's it's a really lovely piece. And that saxophonist is actually a, a Frenchman named Pierre Gosset. 
No, I, I, I have to say, uh, having never heard it before, um, it was, when I listened to the cuts, I did like it. It's, it's challenging at points, but it's definitely worth listening to, checking out. What I didn't know about this album, and just when after you pitched it to me when I looked at it, is that a number of the pieces from Music for Supermarkets went on to be sort of kind of his next album, which was called Zulook, which I know quite well, which I actually have sitting on my CD rack. It's actually a really interesting album, one of his most controversial albums, because it's very different from some of the other stuff that he did but a lot of the songs on there originated as pieces from music for supermarkets and if you listen to it you can hear those things i guess he realized he had something that he wanted to reuse and that's the funny thing like here's the thing this thing only has one copy available which is really cool and really sexy and really interesting but at the same time you me and everybody else can go onto YouTube and hear it because it was pirated. So doesn't that kind of take a little bit of the magic out of it? It does. It's like looking behind the curtain. <laughs> Don't pay any attention to the pretentious French synth musician standing behind the curtain. <laughs> Thing three. Thing number three, ranking the pain of stinging insects from caustic to blinding. This comes to us from Atlas Obscura, as well as a number of other places. This is an entomologist named Justin Schmidt, who I think actually some people might have heard of, because I, I think he's somewhat celebrated for the thing that he does. What does he do, Chris? What does this guy do? He's the king of sting. <laughs> he is the king of stings. Uh, he lets himself be stung by insects. He puts it all together into this index, the Schmidt Pain Index. I have to be careful how I say that. That's interesting <laughs> to say. The Schmidt Pain Index rating how painful an insect bite is. And this guy has been bitten by hundreds of insects. That, that's a claim to fame uh, I'm glad not to have. So he's an entomologist at the Carl Hayden Bee Research Center in Arizona. He's published a whole bunch of papers on this subject. He claims that he's been stung by a majority of stinging insects that he could at least find. And then he wrote an original paper in 1983 to sort of systemize and compare the different properties of insect venoms. But through doing that, he kind of found his calling as describing these stings in interesting ways. Because if you think that he describes these things in scientific uh, bland terminology. Oh no, my friend, that is not what he does. This guy is the poet laureate of insect stings. Yeah, like the bald-faced hornet. Rich, hearty, slightly crunchy, similar to getting your hand mashed in a revolving door. Quite specific. <laughs> <laughs> or the trap jaw ant. Instantaneous and excruciating. A rat trap snaps your index fingernail. Now, the funny thing about this is that there's part of me that thinks this is a, a terrible way to do it because there's really very little scientific evidence to go behind this. But there's also a part of me that thinks this is actually not a bad idea because if you're taking the same person, he can rate every single one of these things on a relative scale. It's not like you or I, which might have varying degrees of tolerance and pain. It's true. And, and I was thinking um, initially when I saw this, I thought, you know, this guy's kind of an idiot getting going around getting himself stung but it's true like if you go to a doctor and they ask you to rate your pain on a scale of one to ten what's a two for me maybe an eight for you right and even though these are very colorful sort of funny descriptions uh, it really kind of nails down 
what that sensation of pain is like. Well, so what he's done is he's taken all of the stings that he's had through the years and he's rated them on a level of from one to four. One is just a, you know, a typical fire ant or something like that. And then four is the highest level of pain that you could actually get for which I think he only has three or four. He has the, the warrior wasp as a four, the tarantula hawk as a four and the bullet ant as a four. And the, the way he's described these is really the top. My, my personal favorite is the tarantula hawk, which he rated at the top of the scale as a four. Uh, and he said, quote, blindingly fierce, shockingly electric. A running hairdryer has been dropped into your bubble bath. A bolt out of the heavens. Lie down and scream. Now, <laughs> the thing that I the thing that I do like about the lie down and scream thing is that he's actually not being facetious. He says, and this has been in a peer reviewed study, that it's actually the best thing to do because if you do get stung by a tarantula hawk, you are on the verge of losing all ability to have motor function or verbal communication. And so, if you lie down, you're not going to fall down, and if you scream, people will know that there's something going on. So he's not just saying this to be a smartass. He's saying this to say, this is actually what you should do. This is your first aid. Just lie down and scream. <laughs> just lie down and scream. And the, the bullet ant, I think, which is also at his four, um, like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. Like, I, I, can, I can imagine that. Well, and the funny thing about the bullet ant is that the bullet ant, that was actually referenced, and, and, and Schmidt himself were actually referenced in the film Ant-Man. If you watch the film Ant-Man, uh, Evangeline Lilly's character, Hope Van Dyne, she actually says, uh, quote, giant tropical bullet ants ranked highest on the Schmidt pain index. So, so this is a, he's a real legitimately known guy. And I think these are probably applicable to, to other sorts of pain. The field of research of pain and pain management is really interesting because, as you might know, one of the things that they do when they are researching pain management is they look at the venoms, the, the toxicology of what goes into different insect venoms to see what causes pain for a long period of time, for a short period of time, on a, on a surface level, something that might be blinding neurologically. And they use that to develop things like new anesthetics. And I think if you, if you think about um, pain that you've experienced, there's definitely, there's pain that burns, there's pain that's sharp or electric. They're definitely not all the same. Sometimes I have to work in a valley here in town that actually has red fire ants. Now, have you ever been been stung by a red ant? I haven't. I, I've been near them, but I've, I've been lucky enough not to get stung. Now, for the listener, a fire ant, a red ant, is a, only a one on the Schmidt pain index. Now, as somebody who has been stung a number of times by red ants, I'm like, geez, if that's a one. Because <laughs> the, the way I, I described it to my wife was it's sort of like being bitten by an electrical current that is also on fire. I can see that. It's it's not a feeling that you want anybody to have. If you want to see this guy, if you want to see his pain index, I'll actually put this page from Atlas Obscura up on the Three Interesting Things Twitter feed, at Three Interesting. That's the number three interesting. So you can see this guy with an ant on his nose. I don't know what kind of ant it is. I don't know if it's a bullet <laughs> ant. I do have to wonder if this guy has a little bit of masochistic tendency, if there's something interesting in his psychology that's making him do this. Because there was actually one of the things that he said where he was stung by the warrior wasp. And his quote was that it was, quote, torture. You are chained in the flow of an active volcano. Why did I start this list? <laughs> why? Oh, why? Oh, why? <laughs> <laughs> And that will do it for today's episode of Three Interesting Things. Chris, thank you so much. Tell us just a little bit about Esoterica, the podcast, because something tells me it's the kind of podcast I would like. Sure. So uh, on Esoterica, the podcast, we discuss the obscure, offbeat, and unusual. Um, you can find us at esotericathepodcast.com. 
and that's got links to all our episodes, uh, to our Twitter and our Instagram, all our various social media accounts. We mostly review music, sometimes one-off albums like Jar, and um, sometimes more run-of-the-mill stuff. Great. Love it. You want to come back on the show sometime? Love to. This is a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, man. What's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Story? Article? Something else? Whatever it is, we want it. Email us at 3interestingthings at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at 3, that's the number 3, interesting things. Or tweet it to us at 3, that's the number 3, interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. If you're enjoying the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It helps other people find the show. We'll see you next week.